0: If you're new to us, we're really glad that you're here. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Uh, You should have gotten one of these when you came in. Everybody should have gotten one. And if you look on the back, there are three things that are always on there. Explore, discover, and grow. I'd I'd encourage you to check those things out. And you can come talk to us about any one of them um, back there at the information table when it's over. And at the bottom there, you'll see a little feature. Um, Feature of the week. It's a little different than usual. We're saying uh, a fun but sad farewell. To the Fox family, Shane and Melissa and the kids are going to be, uh, Shane's in the Coast Guard, and they're going to be transferred to Corpus Christi. And this is their last Sunday here. We had a cake for them between services and said goodbye to them in person. Uh, let me tell you about the Fox family because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about today. Um, they uh, We get Coast Guard folks, families um Very regularly, and they come in, and the blessing and the curse of it is that they're only, you know, they're here for three years, but only three years, usually. uh, We managed to keep the foxes for uh, longer than that. Uh, God broke Shane's leg one year, so we got an extra year out of that. Uh, And then they asked for another year, and we got another year out of that. But uh, let me tell you the deal I don't know what it is about Coast Guard families. Um, And every, uh, every branch of the armed force is amazing, but There's something really unique about these Coast Guard folks. Uh, They come with, they certainly have the spirit of a warrior, right? You want them on your side for sure. In fact, Shane, very humble guy, I've known him for years. Uh, But about a month ago, I was having breakfast with him, and he kind of got steely-eyed, and he looked at me, and he said, give me six months, and I'll beat you at anything. And I thought, all right, there you go. That's the guy I want. That's the guy I want flying that helicopter up there. Um, But, you know, they have that spirit of a warrior, but they also have that heart of a shepherd, There's just something about them. And so the Foxes have just been a model family for that. And uh, if you know them, make sure you say goodbye to them. And we'll uh, try and figure out how to get them back here one day. Uh, You should know also that our lead pastor, Tom, uh, on his sabbatical, he is alive. I know that because I just accidentally pocket FaceTimed him. And I was back in the back and I all of a sudden I heard, hey, yo. And I was like, how is he doing that? I had FaceTimed him. So he's bearded, but good continuing his 500-mile walk. Yes, that's what I said. And uh, Will Bushman, his son-in-law and our co-director of student ministry, and I noticed that something's happening to him because he sends us pictures from time to time. And, you know, Tom is a very organized guy. You know, you'd imagine if he sent you a picture, it would be of, it would be of a very organized bathroom or something. He's starting to send us, like, pictures of wheat. You know, just wheat. Just for the beauty of the color. So something's happening. He's getting, you know, he's getting arty. The Holy Spirit's getting in there. So keep keep praying for Tom, and maybe we'll start sharing some of those pictures with you. But we continue actually come to a close in this series, What Jesus Gave Us. The reason we're pursuing this is because uh, we've been in the Easter season when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But we know that he ascended to heaven, and he left us the Holy Spirit. Um, we celebrate that today, the day of Pentecost. Um, but he left us some incredibly precious gifts. And one of the gifts he left us was each other. And he calls it the church. And, you know, I kind of assume if I say church, everybody has the same idea. But when you start asking around, not necessarily. It has a huge amount to do with your life experience, how you grew up, with whom, where, when, uh, how you were educated, all those kinds of things. Uh, when I say church, what do you think of? Do you, do you think of something like this? You know, maybe you grew up in the in Northeast or in the South, in Alabama somewhere, something like that, and that's kind of typical. Maybe it's something like this. You grew up in a high church, traditional church. Maybe you grew up Catholic. So that, when I say church, that's the first image. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's contemporary. That's the Christ, Crystal Cathedral out in California. Something like that. Or maybe you imagine this, the massive, all oh, the church of God all together. Maybe you're a little more philosophical about it. When I say church, you think, it's the worshiping body of Christ, hands risen, worshiping. Or maybe, and I know this is true a lot of, of my friends in this church, maybe Church for You is something like that. Yeah, see? It's you and the Lord communing in nature together. What about this one? I'll tell you why that came to mind for me this week. First of all, uh, Thursday marked the 75th anniversary of the invasion of of Normandy on D-Day. So there's been a lot of stuff in the media about that. But it also, as I was doing my personal worship this week and studying scripture about the church, it produced a very powerful portrait, a metaphor in my mind of the church. And don't worry, I'm not going to go down some trail of bloodlust where we're all going to march out of here to kill our enemies that disagree with us. It's not about that. But it is powerful. It's a powerful image, and it's not one that maybe is often mustered these days. Um, We're part of a project to plant churches all over the city uh, for the purpose of really bringing social, spiritual, cultural renewal to the city, to love the city. And uh, part of that project is research. So there's a local uh, research firm that has donated services to us, and uh, we've been doing focus groups all over the city of both Christians and non-Christians. And there's some interesting, really fascinating statistics. Can't look at them all today, but we'll, you'll see more of them over time. Uh, that maybe are very telling about attitude about church today. Uh, one of the first ones that jumped out at us was this. Most Christians, these are self-identifying Christians. And it's not just someone who says, I'm a Christian. They ask them a lot of specific questions um, about what that means to them and so forth. Uh, and we would all agree they were Christians. So most uh, self-identified Christians are not engaging in their local church like they used to. So very specifically, um, and by the way, this is not also, uh, uh, I'm not going to pound you for the next 20 minutes about why you should go to church. It's not about that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. I would never want you to go to church because it's your duty, just because you should, just because everybody does, just because good Christians do. That's not what it's about. But I do want you to think today about whether you are leveraging and being leveraged by the gift that is the church. So, 65% of self-identifying Christians in Fort Lauderdale attend Sunday services about nine times per year, plus Christmas and Easter. So that's, once every, that's less than once every month. About 17% attend church once a month or more. And that number is actually on decline. So every year, that's kind of steadily declining. And the number of people who participate in other church activities, either by attendance or through volunteering, significantly lower than any of that. Now, what's fascinating about it, though, is that their faith is vibrant. When you ask them other questions about their love of God and their need for him in their life and all these kinds of things, they're off the charts. They're they're just as strong as anybody who goes to church every day of their life and volunteers and everything else. So what is the disconnect? I think it might be this other observation made through this research. According to that same research, there's an attitude at play, and it is this. The common attitude among uh, self-described Christians, in our area at least, and it really reflects the country, is that the church is perceived primarily as a Sunday morning activity and a set of programs and resources for personal spiritual fulfillment. What does that mean? It means when my tank is empty, the church is there to fill me up. It means when life gets hard, the church is there to pick me up. It means uh, regarding relationships that my church provides me with a community of like-minded people with similar uh, life goals and direction, and uh, we can assist each other and encourage each other uh, along our respective journeys together. So here's the deal. All of that's true. All of that is a part of the precious gift of church, of community, that God has given us, that Christ has left us behind. But here is what I want to talk about today. It is not nearly what is the most precious thing about this gift we call the church. Not even close. The most precious gift the church provides for you today is by design and from the foundations of the earth has always been each other. Think about it. Go all the way back. All the way back to the beginning. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole Bible. But go all the way back to the very beginning. So we have this story. We have the story of the beginning of humanity. Adam and Eve the federal heads of all humanity. And think about what happens there. What does God actually create? He creates a worshiping community. That's really what it is. And he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And it was great. It says this, very beautiful metaphor. It says he walked together with them in the garden. It's the way they were made. And it was great at first. But then at some point... They decided that they didn't need God. They decided that they could forge their own path, and they rebelled against him, and something was broken. What was broken? Community. Communion with God. And do you know what the very next scene of the Bible is? Brother murdering brother. And when brother murders brother, God poses a question... Where is your brother? And his answer is a question. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for my brother? Am I supposed to know where he is all the time? Am I supposed to be concerned that he's not around? Yes. The eternal cry of God was yes. You were made for community. You were made for each other. And here's what happens after that. The world descends into chaos. It's brutal. People, and think about this in your everyday life today. In the absence of communion with God, people stop communing with each other, and they begin instead competing, fighting, dividing, tribalizing. Maneuvering for position, and then it says this: the summary of this chaos of broken fellowship is that every intention of their mind and heart was only evil all the time. That's the logical end of isolation. It's like the serial killer. He was he was a quiet man. He just stayed to himself. He lived in the woods. That's where isolation goes. It goes to evil. It goes to darkness. It goes to death. And so, what was God's plan? What was His solution? Well, it was actually pretty interesting. Uh, he comes to this man Abraham, Abram, a man named Abram, and Abram actually he kind of didn't really get it. He was, an, you know, he 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 was a polytheist. He worshipped other gods, uh, all this kind of stuff. But somehow, by God's grace, Abram trusted God. It says that Abram. Had faith, and God counted that to him as righteousness. And basically, what it meant was Abram would listen to God and do what he said. And so, God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to change your name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And through your descendants, through your multitude, through this new community, I will bless. He doesn't just say all the people of the earth, he says all the nations. I will bless all the broken communities through this beautiful, perfect, reunited community with me. Through the new community, I will save the world. And he uses this word, this Hebrew word, um, that uh, and translated into uh, English means, uh, translated into Greek is actually ekklesia. So the Hebrew word is kahal, and the Greek word is ekklesia, and that's the word that we translate in English into church. And God tells us to Abram very early in human history. He says, Abram, on you, I'm going to build my church. And then he begins to do that. And all of the story of the Bible, all of the history of the world, uh, is really the story of the ups and downs of God's people and their need to rally around Jesus, who God in the, prophesies in the Old Testament will be the cornerstone of his living temple. God says, this building you're building is just a shadow. It's just a a symbol of the real temple that is my people. And they will be built on the foundation of the prophets who have prophesied of the coming of Jesus, who will be the spiritual cornerstone. And you all, Peter says in the New Testament, will be the living stones built on the cornerstone that is Jesus All having their place, all being a part of the structure and stability and beauty. And the implication of that is that each one removed makes it weaker, makes it less functional, makes it less productive. The first time we see this word church in the New Testament is when Jesus is meeting with his disciples. They're all kind of hanging out. And remember who his disciples are, they're his best friends. They're the church he planted. His program, when he came to the earth, began his public ministry, was he recruited 12 guys, and and by extension, their families. And he planted a church with them, and he began to invest in them and spend time with with them. And he would bless the world, and he would heal people, and, and, and he would teach people. But he spent all his time shepherding and discipling these guys. So he gathers all these guys together, all hanging out talking. And he says, hey, what's the buzz about me? What's everybody saying about me? And they say... Well, you know, most of them think you're some kind of a prophet, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you're one of the, the great prophets of the faith, reincarnated. And then he says, okay, but, but who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here it comes. Hear the echoes of Abram. I tell you, Simon, you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. But here it comes. And the gates of hell Shall not prevail against it. That changes the whole ball game, guys. I hear Jesus' words. Those don't sound like loose associations of like-minded people with similar beliefs and life paths who come together to mutually benefit each other on their respective journeys. That's war language. This church belongs to Jesus. Later, he calls it his bride, his betrothed, the one for whom he would die. And he says it will have power, the kind of power that is ultimate and complete. How do we know that? Because it it can destroy the ultimate enemy, death. What are the implications of that? They are this. If I'm in the church, I am the church. I am married to Jesus and I have a mission. And it's the most important mission the world can ever know. It's to set people free from death. Can you think of a more important mission than that? If you knew that tomorrow you could set someone free from death, would you not sacrifice everything else to do that? That's the mission. And by the way, this war is not... Against people. It is, in a sense, a war, but it is not against people. It's for people. It's against isolation and chaos. So what does that make you? It makes you a force. It makes you a warrior with a warrior spirit, but a shepherd's heart. Here's the crazy thing about Christianity. So what's the weapon that Jesus produces for his warriors? For that, we go to the end of his life. And he's been preaching this his entire ministry. But we go to the end of his life, the night before he's going to die. And he calls these same brothers together for the Passover meal. The famous ancient Jewish meal celebrating their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And they're there and their families are there and their kids are running around. We forget that sometimes. He gathers them all together and he gives them his last words. And they are these. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's, it's interesting to me that he does not first say, here it is, go love the world. Here it is, go make disciples. He says that eventually, but not tonight. Not first. He says, first, you must love one another. Well, one of the guys sitting there is a guy named John. It's the guy who ultimately wrote this book, the the, the Gospel of John. But remember, he was just a guy. He was a nobody. And he's sitting there after three years of ministry. And things were really great for a while. And now they're getting worse and worse. And John knows that not only is Jesus in severe danger, but he is too. And he's sitting here at this meal, just totally blown away by what's going to happen. Jesus says this to him, love one another. And the next day, he watches him die. Crucified. But then three days later, he watches him rise. The ultimate warrior conquered death. And then shortly thereafter, he watches Jesus ascend into heaven and the Holy Spirit come down at Pentecost, which we remember this day. And he sees that Holy Spirit pour out into this gospel army on this mission with the heart of a shepherd and the spirit of a warrior. And he sees ordinary people like him, fishermen and farmers and tax collectors and people like that, he sees these ordinary normal nobodies become extraordinary human beings. He sees them have extraordinary faith, extraordinary humility and love and courage. And he watches this throughout his life and coming later into his life, He writes again in a book, a letter to the church. In 1 John, he says this Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Do you know what that means? It means that the evidence of God's existence, His clout, His influence in the eyes of the world, is found in our loving of each other. Not in some abstract out there, right here, wherever we exist as communities of faith. The world knows that He exists because they watch us love each other. And by implication, if we don't love each other, they don't know Him. They can't, or they blaspheme him. So what does that mean about this each otherness, this gift that is each other? It means it isn't primarily for me. I benefit from it, certainly, but it's not for me. It is a tool. It is an object lesson. It's a grand illustration of God's existence, of his relevance. And I'm choosing these words carefully because they're the words of our day. The grand illustration of God's existence and relevance and mercy and his plan to walk again with us in the garden is for the world to see us walking together in the garden. To show that it's possible. To show that it's beautiful. That's his plan. So what does it look like? To actually walk together in the garden. What are the practical steps? We go to my favorite passage. The staff makes fun of me. Because I always throw this one back back at them. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. This is the very, very infantile stages of the church. It's the church living its best life. It's like the church's Instagram page. Okay, Here's what it says. And these new believers. Fueled by the Holy Spirit. Devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They devoted themselves. They were internally motivated and disciplined in their pursuit. This eternal motivation and discipline bred awe in them at God's word and worship. They were together and not just in proximity. It was a state of mind. They were together when they weren't together, but they were together a lot. They sold their stuff. Why did they do that? They were downsizing for the sake of those who had less. They were downsizing so that they could love others. They were imagining, "I, I can't imagine myself where I am and they where they are. So they downsized as an act of love. What else did they do? They did it day by day. Not week by week, not month by month, not nine times a year. They lived together. They did life together. And what was the result? The result was victory. Having favor with all the people, it says... Through their love of each other, they gained the privilege of respect that compelled people to believe, that overcame that eternal charge against Christians that we are hypocrites. It was their love of one another that overcame that and compelled people, by the power of the Spirit, to believe. That kind of living is hard in this day and age. That kind of togetherness and proximity, that kind of time logged together, is difficult. It requires a kind of intimacy and trust with each other that can only be cultivated through shared priorities and beliefs, but something else, something else. Time together in the struggle. So back to this bunch that landed in Normandy on D-Day. My suspicion is that if all they'd done is gone to boot camp and spent a lot of time in training together, they wouldn't be jumping out of airplanes uh, 75 years later to land where they landed on that fateful day. They spent time together in struggle, and here's what the struggle looked like. It's very telling for us today in the church amidst our culture. Uh, It looked like this. They came in, uh, they got scattered all over the place. Every landing force but one landed on the wrong beach. The beach they had no map for. A lot of their landing crafts hit sandbars that they didn't know existed. And when they stepped off the boat, they sunk 10 feet in a 90-pound pack. 23,000 of them parachuted in to take the mainland. And between the wind and enemy fire, they were scattered all over, landed in the wrong drop zones by themselves. Heavily equipped, well-trained, fit alone what was their first order of business before they could engage the mission what do they have to do they had to find each other it's first thing they did they went about the business of finding each other their hope of winning resided in their unity it resided in their shared love of their cause and in their strength together, knowing that together they were worth more than the sum of their parts. Here's the deal. When you interview these guys, you watch these old guys on, on, on these various shows and interviews, they'll all tell you the same thing. They got on the boat, they got in the plane for a grand narrative, to liberate oppressed people, to defend the cause of freedom. But once they got on the boat, once they got on the plane and they landed in this fight, they landed in the mud... Their deepest moment-to-moment motivation changed, and now their cause was the guy next to them. Now they lived and fought and died for their brother. That's what got them through the war with the grand narrative. Jesus was the ultimate noble warrior. On the grand scale, he came to set us free and to restore communion with God. But on a personal level, and I want you to hear this, especially if you've never really understood what it means to have a relationship with Christ, here it is. On the grand scale, he came to restore communion with God and to make peace, to bring peace to the world again. But on a personal level, you were his cause. I was his cause, the one next to him. But here's what's crazy. In God's divine economy, when he came next to me, I was not his friend. I was not his fellow soldier. I was his sworn enemy. But for love of God, for love of peace, for love of communion, and for love of me, he died that I might live. He came to liberate his enemy. That was me. So what does that mean for us here at Rio? It means this. It means everything I just said about Jesus should, should be said of us. The citizens of Christ's kingdom on earth. His church. They're noble warriors with a shepherd's heart who will live and die for the cause of freedom and for the one next to us, whoever they may be. Even and especially our enemy. That is the potent gift of one another. We have to log time together. I know it's difficult to do that in this world. I know we live in a world that worships personal freedom, cultivates isolation, works against any kind of shared rhythm of life. I understand that. It's just like parachuting into that battlefield with people shooting at you, right? You still got to find each other if you want to accomplish your mission. I know that um, our overabundance, our, our, uh, our, our prosperity and our abundance of life gives us an overabundance of choices and opportunities that can interrupt our shared rhythms, that can fill all of our white space and disrupt consistent time together. And our community group leader and I were chatting about this last night. And he said a great thing. He said another one is technology. Technology causes us to mistake connection for communion. So what do we do? We find each other. There's no one way to do that. In some sense, we've landed alone in that hostile territory, and if we, if we try to win this struggle alone, no matter how fit we are, full of supplies, eventually we'll just be courageous failures. Depression, anxiety, fear, addiction bitterness these are the dark enemies living in the shadows today these are the ones shooting at you as you parachute onto the field and they seem so overrealized in our time our kids our kids for heaven's sake our little kids are struggling with these adult struggles and pains and they these things they they thrive in isolation and they wither in community and so what does that mean? It means that maybe we're struggling alone more than we realize. And we need to find each other. So this week, uh, one of the things that I heard about, the, about D-Day was a radio show. It was really a radio interview of, a, of this guy, retired private Leslie P. Cruz. He's 95 years old. He was a part of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment. There he was then. He parachuted in on D-Day with the 82nd Airborne. He said really cool stuff in the interview, you know, like tough stuff, like we, were too, we, were, we didn't have time to be scared. He said stuff like that. Half of his division was uh, killed, wounded, or missing by the end of the fight. His friend Richard died next to him, saving his life. The interview asked him one final question, and I actually wanted you to hear his response. Um, they asked him, what is the one thing that you want people to know about as we mark this day? And I wanted you to hear it in, your, in his words. And uh, we expect them to pick up the ball and run with it, show some sins show. So let's do that. Let's pick up the ball and run with it here at Rio Vista Community Church in our little town, in our little region, in our little city. Let's get together. Let's log time together. Let's get together on Sundays and worship. Let's get together between services. Let's get together in personal worship and and in Wednesday night, spiritual formation night. Let's get together and be those living stones and pick up the ball and run with it be citizens of an eternal kingdom that will last forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this precious gift that you have given us that is each other and we are not perfect people. But we have access to your perfections. And as we do that, and we seek to love each other, your spirit changes us. So as we prepare for this time of reflection, we ask your spirit to come. In Jesus' name, amen.